Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Sophie Lieberman, and I'm the Director of Public Education and Industry Programs here at ACME. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge that we um, meet on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to Elders past and present and expect, extend those respects to Aboriginal people joining us this evening, whether they are in the room or indeed joining us online via live stream. So I have a very simple job this evening, which is to welcome you to tonight's conversation, the decolonisation of Aboriginal representation on our screens. And really to, first of all, thank and acknowledge the work of Tony Briggs and Damien Pradier um, from Typecast Entertainment for their work in conceiving and bringing together this panel. We're very proud to be co-presenting this with you and we thank you deeply for all your work on this. Second, before I get out of the way and we get on with the business of the evening, I have the pleasure of introducing tonight's host, Leila Guruwiwi. Leila's a proud Yolngu woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and another one. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Leila's originally from Gullawinku on Elko Island in northeast North Arnhem Land, but she grew up most of her life in Bendigo, Victoria. She finished year 12 in Melbourne and six months after that was thrown into the deep end when the Mangrook Footy Show was commissioned by NITV um, to show in 2017. She is, as you would no doubt know, a member of the Mangrook family, presenting news, the injury report, interviewing current and former Indigenous and non-Indigenous footballers, as well as having a women's tipping segment called Titus Tips. Um, in the past two years, Layla has been a regular panellist alongside Gilbert McAdam, Grant Hansen and Shelley Ware. In addition to that, she's also dabbled in acting, including Team of Life, The Secret River and Glitch. Layla's also emceed a number of events in Victoria and interstate, and she's also a cultural awareness speaker in schools across Melbourne and is currently working part-time as an Indigenous support worker at the Pavilion School in East Preston, where she helps create a culturally safe and um, space for Indigenous students to study and create passion for Indigenous culture in both Indigenous and non-Indigenous students alike. She's also, and this is becoming exhausting, an <laughs> ambassador for Hope Health and for the ASRC. I'm sure you will agree with me that we could not be in better hands for tonight's conversation. Thank you, Layla. Well, thank you very much. Um, before I go any further, I would just like to say, as a proud Yungal woman originally from Arnhem Land, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I have been able to live and thrive on, the Wurundjeri people, and all the clans of the Kulin Nation. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, as well as Uncle Bruce Pascoe, who's on our panel tonight, and I would also like to pay respects to all Indigenous people that are in uh, the room tonight as well. So first off, I'm going to introduce the panel. And as I said just before, Uncle Bruce Pascoe, who is a proud Bunurong man, Bunurong, UN and Tasmanian man, an award-winning author of uh, The Dark Emu. 
And then we have Tracy Rigney, who is a proud Wajibalak Ngarinjeri woman, and she is a writer and director of theatre, film and TV. And last but not least, we have Crystal McKinnon, who is a proud Yamaji woman and a leading academic on Indigenous sovereignty and resistance statistics. And we have, sorry, but we also have some statistics. Did we want to go through the statistics? So here are some of the statistics of Aboriginal representation in Australian film and TV industry. So the number of Aboriginal actors on Australian TV in 1992 was zero. In 1999, that became two. In between, uh, in between 2010 and 2017, the number of Aboriginal directors was 12. The number of Aboriginal producers at the same time was five. And the number of Aboriginal writers was 12. And the number of Aboriginal director of, director of photographies during that same time was eight. 5% uh, of the proportion of all main characters on TV who are Aboriginal in 2017. The proportion of TV programs with no Aboriginal main characters between 2011 and 2015 was 83%. The proportion of characters on TV which the writer intended to be Aboriginal but was, caught, but was cast with an actor of a different background was 22%. And the number of feature films in the 1970s uh, with an Aboriginal Australian in a key role is zero and one in a TV drama. And the number of feature films between 2000 and 2010 was nine and in TV dramas, 16. So, and then last but not least, we have <laughs> 44 short films that have been directed by an Aboriginal director in the 1990s, 169 short films directed by an Aboriginal director from 2000 to 2010. 40 Indigenous filmmakers have held key creative roles on 52 TV drama programs since the 1980s. 46 were made since 2000 compared to six in the 1990s and zero in the 1980s. And 177 Indigenous filmmakers had key creative roles on 432 documentaries since 2000, compared with 26 filmmakers on 24 titles in the 1980s. So those are pretty alarming statistics as far as I'm concerned. And um, we definitely need to see that change very soon. But I'm going to ask a few questions of our panel. So first and foremost, uh, Crystal, I might ask you the best question. And of course, feel free, Tracy, and also Uncle Bruce to um, put in your thoughts as well. But how does the media and screen industry perpetuate the stereotype of colour when it comes to Indigenous actors? Well, to my ways of thinking, I think that film and TV are one way that um, colonisation and the state maintain power. It's the way that uh, knowledge is created about us and that's why those statistics are so alarming when so much of the stereotypes and the images that are given out about us aren't controlled by us. We don't get to tell those stories. We don't get to depict those characters. And as one of the ways I think that knowledge is produced about us in terms of maintaining colonial power, um, yeah, and that's how... What was, what was the other question? <laughs> I think, um, 
yeah, I think that it's in the interest of um, colonial power and domination and the rest of it um, to continue to portray us in negative ways. I think of late, like funding um, and having people in uh, the role of giving out money and giving opportunities to help encourage and, and nurture um, talented filmmakers or writers um, has also played a part in how, you know, we've seen since the 1980s not really anyone being, you know, creating any kind of um, material, but then a big push in the 2000s because we've got people in roles such as, you know, the Indigenous unit at Screen Australia. Um, I think we did have someone here at Film Victoria as well, um, just to help, yeah, um, yeah, get people to create content, you know, tell our stories. Uncle Chris? Well, I think things are... Are changing those statistics show change but it's rapid change uh, when you look at some of those stats they're talking about 2014 uh, where there was virtually no activity uh, from an Aboriginal perspective no inclusion so in the last three years there's been enormous change and we were talking about it before the show began uh, of how busy everybody is and it's because Australia's taking an interest in Aboriginal perspectives not just Aboriginal content but Aboriginal perspectives that's true and we have up here on the screen at the moment an image of Rosalie Kenneth Monks from Jeddah and also uh, we have an image of Ursula Jovic from Australia and both of these characters were, were darkened for their particular roles. Uh, how do you feel about that and the, the perpetuating of um, all Indigenous people tending to have dark skin? Well, in my opinion, they should have cast somebody with darker skin in those roles. I think it's probably different um, in the period of Jeddah but in a more contemporary sense. Sorry, I'm just looking at the image there. It's um, quite unsettling to see the blackface, I guess. Um, yeah, and it, and it does people with darker skin out of roles that um, they could have been in, I think. I don't know. What do you think, Trace? You're yeah, a director. No, I agree. <laughs> I, look, as a director, I would have uh, cast someone who looks apart rather than um, putting Ursula in uh, probably a, a situation she probably Pretty didn't really want to be in. Like it's, yeah, so as an actor. Um, so or just have her appear as she is, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know what the conversations mm. were. And, and that's the thing, like we don't know what the conversations were around mm. that. So, I, I, yeah. It's all in context, of course. But Uncle Bruce, your thoughts? Well, I'm involved in a couple of film productions at the moment. Um, and we, we've had those discussions, uh, and there, you know, you've got the ABC who are partners in the project, um, asking questions about, you know, how come there's people of different skin colour um, in that scene, and we say, well, because there are people of different skin colour in that scene. Um, <laughs> I mean, different shades and sizes. And, and you know, that's the best actor. That's the best best actress. That's you know, um, the person we wanted. That's the person of the right age. 
Um, so that's why they're in the film. It, they're difficult discussions for everybody because they're fairly bruising. ABC want to get a um, value for their money. They're putting up a lot of money for this. Um, and those conversations behind the scenes are good for everybody because we, we have to grapple with our own assumptions about, you know, what is right for cinema, what is right culturally, uh, what is right for Australia. You know, these conversations are happening not just in film, they're happening in the workplace, they're happening in schools, and they're healthy conversations. We don't come out of them unbruised. Nobody does. Um, but at least they're happening. They never used to happen. In the days of Jeddah. Was Rosalie asked how black she wanted to be? Mm. Bet you she wasn't. Mm. Go to make up Rosalie, you know, go back to the dormitory, Rosalie. That, you know, she's talked to me about those days. They were terrible. Being on that set was terrible. Don't you think when you're saying about um, the ABC wanting it to be in a certain way and get value for money or however you want to phrase it, don't you think that's the difference? And that's kind of essentially what we're talking about in terms of decolonisation of film, in terms of Blackfellas being in charge of mm. content and production mm. and casting mm. and writing mm. versus this outside force coming in and saying, no, we want it to be this way. Yeah. And that's why we get the difference in the varied um, portrayals of Aboriginality or... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, when, when we actually have control of what's going to be yeah. in there. Yeah, when you've got people in key creative roles, like when I'm writing a script... Like pretty much everyone's a black father in my script, but I'm not saying, oh, you know, they look this kind of colour or this shade. Mm. Like I then, you know, will you know, um, audition if I if I want to, or or um, if I've seen someone in a in a film or a play and think, yeah, they're the part. I go on, you know, who they are and their talent, yeah. as opposed to what they look like, and whether they can breathe life into that character mm. and make them jump off the page. Yep. And we have the responsibility um, to explain our point of view uh, to the other people on the set, all of whom have got to do their job. And they, they need an explanation. You know, and if it's um, news to them, then, you know, break it gently. Um, because for us, Aboriginal people to be sneering at non-Aboriginal people is, is not a way to hold a discussion. It has to be open, has to be bloody frank, um, and it will be bruising. But, you know, this is the era in which I can't remember a time when we've been having these discussions. And I think it's well and truly before time, no, not before time. Uh, we just have to be aware that there are people in the room and um, everybody, everybody's human and we've got to sort it out because if we don't sort it out behind the scenes on the set, we're not going to be able to sort it out in real life. But, Uncle, mm. do you reckon um, they've got a responsibility as Whitefell is working on an Indigenous set to educate themselves a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Because everybody. it always falls on to us mm. to do the educating. And, 100%. Yeah, totally. And I think that, like, yeah, that they have a responsibility if they're going to take a role on an Indigenous set that it shouldn't be up to. Yeah, I think it's vitally... Um, part of the responsibility of non-Aboriginal people to be aware of history. Um, you know, often I'm a writer of books and I've had arguments with editors um, telling me how my auntie should speak. You know, I'm recording almost verbatim 
um, a speech she gave me, and I said, no, that's how she speaks. She's very political, said the editor. I said, yeah, she's very political. Um, And she had good reason. She had every reason in the world Mm. to be political, that lady. Um, But that conversation um, has to be thorough. Everybody has that responsibility to be informed. And ignorance is no longer an excuse because yeah. there is there are ways to relieve ignorance in this day and age for everybody. Yeah, definitely. Exactly, Uncle Bruce. Uh, how does the... Oh, we just did that one. <laughs> how has the representation changed in film and TV over time and has it really changed? Um, we look at images like David Gulpilil, for example, from Australia and also Kelton, pa- Kelton Powell from Three Summers and there's always this perception of the, the noble savage or um, and is it appropriate for us to now move away from that into more of a contemporary form showing the wider public that we as a people have evolved from that Crystal? May. <laughs> Look I don't know about moving away from something like a stereotype and this idea of the noble savage is something that's been put on us mm. and on certain types of depictions like I don't think it's um, <laughs> stereotypes operate outside of what's actually really happening. You know, if you want to put, say, the David Goldpool character on a screen, that is a um, portrayal of indigeneity. It's someone from the outside saying this is a noble, savage imagery or whatever else. I think the problem more is that, um, A, these images are being um, <laughs> directed and controlled by non-Indigenous people a lot and B, there's not enough spaces for young um, Aboriginal directors coming up in order to portray this kind of contemporary um, depictions, I guess. And that image there is from Walkabout. Tracy? Yeah, look, as long as you've got... Well, this is what I believe. As long as you've got non-Indigenous filmmakers... Um, making films about Aboriginal people or storytelling, it's always going to be from the outside looking in. If you've got Aboriginal people in those key roles, creating our own story, telling our own stories and telling it from our perspective, it's always going to be inside out. So that's that's how I see it. Mm. Uncle Bruce? Yeah, it's important for the perspective um, to come from the people generating the perspective, not from someone on the outside um, uh, making assumptions about what Aboriginal people think or what Aboriginal people have done. You know, it it wouldn't be acceptable to uh, talk about um, people from uh, the subcontinent of India um, and not interview them. Uh, about their history, about their role, and yet that has been done in Australia. But um, look at yourself, Layla, because um, Mangrook, you know, that show is extraordinary. Um, and it's, it's becoming, <laughs> you know, um, it's becoming the show that real footy fans want to watch because it talks about football. But it is stunning to watch that that program after the Adam Goods business and to hear the first 
12 minutes of that show devoted to that case. You know, we're supposed to be watching footy shows, but we've got this intense discussion by a range of people, Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal people, talking about that situation. Mm. And it was so refreshing, and it must have been refreshing for Australia, but, ah, here's our chance to talk about this now and to listen to this. Um, and, you know, I just think that this is an extraordinary thing that's happening. And it wouldn't have happened, you know, that was only, what, four or five years ago. It wouldn't have happened six or seven years ago. Those stats are proving that. Mm. Um, we're on the, the cusp of a hell of a lot of change. And I, I remember Screen Australia, um, led, led by some, you know, fabulous women who said, we don't have enough directors, we don't have enough writers. What we're going to do is create them. So they invited a dozen or so uh, Aboriginal writers and directors um, away to an intense camp where, you know, we had Rachel Perkins, Warwick Thornton, um, all that mob, and they just crashed us for three days on um, making films. And two or three of those have been made. Um, there are two or three more to come, and it's a, you know, it's a seismic shift. No, that money was provided by Screen Australia. Mm. The Australian government put that money up. Uh, so I reckon it is happening. And, you know, I've got three grandchildren, so I can never be pessimistic. I can't, I can't say nothing is happening to my grandchildren. I have to say um, there's a chance to make change, and you kids are going to be part of it. Oh, definitely. All of you have in some way, shape or form answered this next question, but should Aboriginal stories only be told by Aboriginal writers and filmmakers and why? I don't think they're Aboriginal stories if they're not told by Aboriginal filmmakers or directors or writers. They're just stories outside looking in, like Tracy said before. Yeah. I, yeah, I've said it before, <laughs> but... Um, like I said, someone can go and make a story and or make a film or whatever, but it'll always just be on on the outside. And it's and, not and an it's, Aboriginal and story. And it's about authenticity yeah. and voice and you know all of that. Like, how do they know how we talk? Um, especially today, like there's that many different mobs and we all mm. kind of got our own little slang and mannerisms lingo and, and you know yeah way of talking and just way mm. of being and. Um, Unless you, you marry into the mob and you live with the mob and, you know, then you might be able to. But I think if you are to do something, you, you've got to, you know, there's protocols, there's appropriate, culturally appropriate um, ways and process to, processes to go about it and work in with a, an Aboriginal filmmaker or storyteller mm. if you're that passionate about it. Yeah, and Crystal. I just think, yeah. And, there's a yeah. Disc and I remember um, just prior to before we spoke about the idea of being involved uh, from conception. Um, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> we are having a conversation before we started. I was just um, about somebody approaching um, somebody to um, tell a story that related to them and I just said, well, yeah, it's not if it, if you're not including someone from the inception and from the starting point, then you, they're not really included. You can't have this idea and just get somebody because you think it's politically correct in order to include them. And once you've already figured out what it is you want to do, that's not. Um, it's not a collaboration. No, no, and it's not culturally no. No. appropriate. Yeah, and like I think what we're talking about 
here, there's a difference between telling an Indigenous story and a story that's not yours to tell, as opposed to telling a story and there's an Indigenous character as well. Like, I think that's really different. And some of the stats, I think, related to that. Like, I don't know what you guys think, but I think it's different. Mm. I had an experience recently where we were working on a, a film script uh, that had already been conceived um, a long time ago and it had been worked up uh, and it was the, then the, the filmmakers engaged two Aboriginal writers to come on um, and uh, do the dialogue. We were just dialogue writers and um, you know w w we argued that now hang on this, no use just doing the dialogue, we've got to do the story. And there was a, a lot of argument back and forth, a lot of change was made. Two very well-meaning men uh, who have done some terrific things in, in cinema. But we had this intense discussion. Um, uh, both the other writer and myself um, uh, got sacked or the money ran out or something. Um, and I don't know where that's gone now, but there was no Aboriginal agency. Uh, you know, we just don't do dialogue, so we put in a bit of uh, Aboriginal patois into the into the movie. Um, it's got to be realistic about what was actually happening. You know, if you've got the history wrong from that period, um, can't we correct the history? And it was a it wasn't a wonderful experience. Uh, it, it was a learning experience, but it wasn't a wonderful experience. Uh, and those conversations keep on happening because well-meaning people, and you've got to applaud that because it's better than bad-meaning people, mm -hmm. uh, well-meaning people, um, uh, as Crystal said, have the responsibility to be informed. And if you're writing a, 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 a film about Australian history and you've got the history wrong, you, you, know, you, you really have to do better research than that. Uh, you know, don't read you know, just Geoffrey Blaney. Read Henry Reynolds as well. Preferably read an Aboriginal Or historian. Tony Birch and Gary yeah. <laughs> Some Indigenous historians. Yeah. 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 What are some of the social and political reasons, do you think, that it's taken so long for positive Aboriginal films to be made in Australia? Bounce that way. <laughs> oh, I just reckon. I just reckon we're on that uh, that knife edge. Um, we, we're going to tip over one side or other of it in the next few years, um, and uh, I just think that there's a generation of Australians, and it's not mine, uh, who are thinking more constructively about what really happened in this country and how we are in the situation we're in, and, and what are the the forms of attitudes and legislations which uh, cause us to be in this this situation, and you know some of those people are, are broadcasters and filmmakers, and but a lot of them are milk bar proprietors. Milk bar is an old-fashioned term. <laughs> it's where you uh, buy McDonald's now. Um, <laughs> but you know, the, from uh, people just going about their daily lives to people in communications, I think there's a sea change, and you know. It, it's my generation that is hardest to talk to um, about these things, and I find them the hardest people to convince. Whereas if you are talking to other generations, you feel like you've got a chance. That to have a genuine discussion, you feel like you've got a chance. So 
And I think that uh, we have to utilise that mood. Like I said before, it's no good... I don't think, this is my opinion, I don't think it's good blackfellas standing back and saying, oh, you'll never understand us, you'll never understand us. It doesn't get us anywhere. You know, it's our responsibility, um, and we've always had it. You know, black fellas get up in the morning, they go to bed tired, because sometime during that day, you know that you're going to have to explain the history of Australia and your skin colour. Mm. Um, one way or the other, um, you'll have to do all of those things, and you'll go to bed exhausted. Um, and... So, you know, we, we've got a responsibility to speak up, but so have, as Crystal said, so have non-Aboriginal people got the responsibility to be well informed. You know, if you went to school and you wrote a, a crummy essay, your teacher would chastise you and mark you down. So it's the same for conversation. You have to be informed. And there are means of being informed today, and if you don't use them, then that's a lack of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Extending beyond the informed too, I think it's also about giving up power. Um, you know, in the film and TV industry, behind the scenes, you know, there needs to be Indigenous people employed being lighting and... Um, yeah. In all sorts of departments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of All of the places. And if there's not, ask why, you know. It's mm. not just... Um, the directing and the um, actors that need to be included for there be for there to be a change. So I think I'm we less optimistic than you are mm. about, um, <laughs> um, and I'm probably more cynical about. I think it um, it's not our responsibility to educate anymore. <laughs> I really don't think so. I think that the information's out there, and I think it's their responsibility to educate themselves. I understand where you're coming from, mm. with all respect, but. Um, and, yeah, not just educate, but give up power, you know, mm. give up your seat. If you want to tell an Indigenous story, sit down and think why. Like, what, why do you think you have a right to that? Why do you think, you know, like some real interrogation about power in your place, um, your place generally in the world, I think, needs to take place because I feel like we've been having this discussion about the history wars or... Um, um, you know the truth about history or whatever it is for two decades now <laughs> you know it's like a lot of people have put a lot of energy a lot of black fellas have put a lot of energy into um doing the education you know mm. i don't know like we're just it just feels like it's on this treadmill of going you know it's and so those good. conversations happen every mm. day mm. yeah and it's just like enough now i think mm. do you I do you think that there's enough um pathways for young Indigenous people who are interested in being in our space, working in television and working in movies? Do you think there's enough pathways there at the moment? Do you think there's enough support for, for young Indigenous people, young Indigenous filmmakers, producers, people that have that creative mind at this moment in time? I would probably say there could be more, but um, if people do want to pursue this as a career there certainly is opportunity there are opportunities I mean um, I've been blessed with the support from the women at the Indigenous unit at Screen Australia it was then called Australian Film Commission back in the day um, so that, yeah they've really um, helped I guess mm. you know shape me to be the, the filmmaker that I am today and, and take me on those Bateau Bay um, trips mm. up which were deadly, like they, um, 
so much time and energy and, and funding was well spent because, yeah. the, you know, I got to be mentored by Jill Armstrong. You know, I got to meet people like her and um, and other amazing filmmakers and it just really, um, you know, it, it makes you keep going. It keeps you wanting to, to pursue it because otherwise, you know, I, I'm from Timbula and... So I'm from the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, growing up there, I would never have dreamed that I would be sitting here and mm. be in this industry. So absolutely, I think there is opportunities. You've got to find them, but, but they're there. But there could be more, mm. absolutely. I had an enormous amount of help from Erica Glynn and Kaya Sheriff, yep. um, who would... I just can't express how what a profound change they made on the opportunities for that group of uh, Aboriginal writers. Um, but also, I, um, I work at UTS, uh, University of Technology, Sydney, and I'm, I have an association with um, the Australian Film and Television School, AFTERS, in Sydney, and I reckon I know 60 young Aboriginal people um, training to be in, in the media and that 60 are going to graduate together it's an enormous number it may not sound a lot but it's an enormous number and it'll change the industry some of the people have sound some of the people are lighting some are writers some are directors but 60 people at once bang you know 18 months from now bang watch out is all these black fellas on the set. Yeah. And it'll make a huge change. And I see, and because I'm going through uh, uh, working with university students and uh, things like that, I see it in other areas as well. And I keep on saying to people, watch out, you know. There's going to be black architects all over the place. They'll be on your, they'll be on your roof. They'll be looking down your chimney. Um, and I, I see it in every form. Now, statistically, it might just, you know, 60 compared to 2,850 or whatever it is, um, mightn't sound like a lot, but it's a seismic change, I, I believe. And we're always going to be in this situation uh, where 3% of the population is trying to convince 97% of the population and that puts an enormous amount of pressure on those 3% and it does make you weary uh, but um, it's you know it might be 5% in 20 years time might be 6% but it's always going to be a small percentage and um, it's one of the realities I just get excited by seeing all those young people mm. because I know um, I know that 20 years ago there were none. Mm. I, you know, I'm involved in languages as well. 20 years ago, when I first started working in languages, the only language taught in Victoria was um, uh, the um, South Australian language, um, and uh, you know it was taught at, up at uh, Warburton. You know, a, a South Australian language being taught in Warburton, the only language being taught. Now, there are 13 different languages over an enormous number of schools. I can't tell you the number of schools where Aboriginal language is being taught to school students, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. That's an enormous change. And I have to say to the young people who work in our organisation, I say, there has been change, you know? And there's a lot of change to come. But don't think nothing's happened because it's, it's on the way. And Australian interest in 
Aboriginal languages is minimal at the moment, but it's changing. And every time I, I hear an elder or a young person get up and speak in language, I, it chokes me because it never happened before. And Australia never wanted to hear it. And now parts of Australia, some Australians do want to hear it. And it's, it's going to liberate, um, liberate our languages. See, I think that's one of the key um, aspects of decolonisation is that it starts from within our communities and then goes out, you know, and one of the great things I think that's been going on is language revitalisation and um, people learning language when it was tried to be stripped away from us. So it's amazing work and really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all change comes out of the people. I don't think real change comes from politicians. Uh, they might deliver it in the end, but real change comes out of the guts of the people. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So there's been a number of uh, well-known Indigenous people that have um, been a part of the mainstream conscience, if you like, um, over the last few years. Uh, and... How do we, as a community, um, navigate showing images and um, saying names of um, deceased Indigenous people, especially when they're prominent um, and in the public eye? Uh, what is your thoughts on this topic and what do you think should be the correct protocol? I, th I think that that should be decided by wherever that person's from, the community the family that they're and from. The community. I don't think it's anyone from the outside to determine um, what should, how that should be uh, that should be done, and whether that means that there's 300 different rules. That's what should be done, in my opinion. It should be guaranteed uh, when the production is underway that that uh, those all those decisions should be have been made well and truly before we get down to shooting film. That that community um, ought to have been involved in that pr production from from the beginning. If you're going to talk about language, if you're going to talk about particular elements of cultural history, go back to the people who were there and ask them. You know, what do you think about this? What did, what would your grandmother think about this representation of her life? Uh, it, they're normal questions. You know, if you were shooting a film in uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, and you, you didn't interview people who were on the ground at the time of that horrible war, then you've done a disservice to your scholarship and to your integrity as a filmmaker and an historian. You wouldn't do it. So don't do it here. So here we have uh, two images of Dr G Inupingu, who through our kinship system is my ngapapi, so my uncle, and we actually had a lot of issues around his passing because a small number of family uh, consented to his name being used after his death, and uh, but the majority of us were, were not happy with that particular decision. So um, for me, uh, these are the actual images that, that I chose that um, that I'm happy with people seeing and using in relation to him um, because for us it's inappropriate to show his face, it's inappropriate um, to show his name um, and that's something that will happen um, 
forever, essentially. So, um, yeah, and I think what you were saying before, you know, whatever's whatever's appropriate, sorry, for that particular community and and the family, I think, is um, something that people need to... um, practice and I think a good example of that was when um, Dr. Yudapingu, the lead singer of Yothi Indi passed away a number of years ago now and uh, he uh, we had forgive me the lead singer of the lead singer of Midnight Oil Peter Garrett. Peter, Peter Garrett. His name just escaped my mind just then. But Peter Garrett was in um, in Parliament at the time and, and said uh, because he understood the protocol of the Yongle people that he was just going to call him Dr Yinapingu. So I think that was a really good way of him showing that he understood the protocol and used it in Parliament. Um, so that was a good kind of example of that. And we've had a number of um, Indigenous people a prominent Indigenous people that are in the film and TV space that, is, that have passed away in um, the last few years. So, you know, pay my respects to all those people that have passed away. And, and look at the, the graceful uh, resolution of mm. that problem. Um, what, a, what a beautiful way to show the difference of, of how your family um, treats this situation. And, you know, this is something that anyone can respect and understand. And you've got this incredible, incredibly powerful image to explain the situation. Mm. It's a learning tool, mm. as well as a mark of deep respect. Mm. And I guess it's one of the problems that people can pick and choose when when they want to abide by family's wishes or not. And um, a problem with Australian media, I guess, is that there isn't a standard... Um, enforceable policy when it comes to this sort of um, depiction so I would dare say the quality of the media outlet would um, <laughs> warrant whether and also yeah wh- whether whether they would um, abide by family wishes or not mm. which is a real issue mm, that's a massive issue yeah it is but what are some of the tangible things that can force change to allow Aboriginal people to control their stories for future generations? What are the tangible things that, that we can do that everyone in this uh, theatre right now can do to help that along and, and make that a reality? Give up power, give money. <laughs> give us and money. And employ Black And come watch our films. <laughs> Please. <laughs> get to know Aboriginal people Um, you know so many people come up to me after sessions like this and say what can I do you know I've never met an Aboriginal person what can I do well you know 100 people walk past you in Burke Street you walk past you know three of those people have been Aboriginal Um, it's just a matter of becoming aware of the Aboriginal face um, and saying oh I'm you know, recognise you, um, you know, how are you going? You know, have that conversation. And instead of whinging um, about uh, not being able to have a conversation with Aboriginal people, you know, often people say to me, I rang the co-op and um, they never got back to me. Well, they're getting 97 phone calls um, from you three and it, they're very busy people. With And uh, Tony Abbott... 
uh, cut the funding by 50%. You know, how do you expect those people to be answering the phone for you? So you have to be aware uh, of the pressure that Aboriginal people are under and uh, make make allowances for that. But In my opinion, though, it's also a willful blindness. It's people don't want to see and don't want to engage mm. and only want to engage in ways that it's convenient for them, so mm. after a talk, they'll come up to you, and it's mm. just like a more of a symptom of the national psyche of kind of willful blindness towards mm. um, blackfellas. And yeah, but yeah, they have you know, it, to make that change, you have to want to engage, not rely on an indigenous person to hold your hand by ringing the land council. Like, mm. there's the land council's going to tell you to go to Google or yeah. go to your local. Um, NADOC March go to you know there's yeah, there's, there's so many events. community events that people could attend That's but right. um, be active and be visible yeah mm. and be and, active mm. and go out and, and search and talk and listen listen yeah. listening is very is key I think mm. and one of the great perks of the writing game um, is that I was invited to talk to the Fish Creek uh, tea Cozy Festival on um, on Saturday night. You know, all the tea you could drink. You know, like, <clears throat> they they stinted nothing. Um, and um, you know, I and there were teapots everywhere, of course, with tea cozies on them. And I got a, a little one, and I've just shifted house, and I didn't have one, so I treasure that little teapot. But I I say to people, you, you want to actually do something um, about this about the, the fact that you you want to know something about Aboriginal Australia and you don't know something ask an Aboriginal person into your house and give them a cup of tea share a cup of tea with them and often I remember in um, Ajamatna country one old lady said that is the first time I've ever been in a white lady's house you know this this is then it might you know, the reversal will happen too. That is the first time I've been in an Aboriginal person's house. These are incredibly... They're at the very cutting edge of society. That is the moment when everything changes. And, you know, I, I always say, what can you do? Teapot is the answer. Teapot. <laughs> oh, that's so true. I don't... I personally don't like tea. <laughs> what is wrong with you? I know. People are like, are you even a black fella? Like, you don't even like tea. But, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not the big tea drinker in the house. But I have plenty of tea in my house just in case family come over so they can have teas and biscuits and, and whatnot. But um, thank you so much, guys, for being so candid and open and honest with all of your um, – with this wonderful, interesting discussion tonight. Thank you so much. But um, I wanted to open up to the floor now and see – I know that you guys have got a few questions up your sleeve um, if anyone's got a few questions that they would like to ask our panel don't be shy please <laughs> got one or two Hi, I just want to talk about um, colourblind casting. There's been a lot of talk about colourblind casting, the idea that you can write a character without a specific race and any race could be considered for it. <clears throat> Going back to what you said before about 
uh, writing characters of um, an Indigenous background without first consulting with Indigenous uh, uh, communities. Um, I wondered, are we at a point now where we can have, um, personally as a, as a writer and my friend Matt next to me, we're writing a film at the moment where non-Indigenous writers, we have two Indigenous characters in the film that there is no reference to their Aboriginality. There's no... Um, we don't touch on there. We don't even know what mob they're from. They just happen to be two characters who happen to be Indigenous because we love the actors who we want to cast in those roles. Um, are we at a point now where we can where we can have those characters in the film without um, feeling like we are in any way being offensive to um, to any Indigenous communities? Panel. Oh, I'd have to know the, like the story in order to answer that properly. But um, I think I was sort of it's more saying about indigenous story as opposed to indigenous characters. So there's a difference between a story that's not yours and you're telling it, as opposed to putting an indigenous character in a film. Um, that's my opinion, anyway. <laughs> as Trace, you're a writer. What are your? Oh, I'm just thinking. Um, so. Just have a conversation with the actors as well, whoever mm. they are, whoever you're thinking of casting and, and just see if they're cool with it too. And I mean, I probably wouldn't see any issue with it. But well, that, that's, I mean, that's what usually happens, I guess. Mm. I guess usually you'd get to uh, the first read through of a film and you'd get to the rehearsal period and that's where each of the actors kind of gets to bring their own uh, own thing to it. And, and I, I, I would like to think that we are able to still... Uh, do that despite, you know, regardless of what the background, what the cultural background of any of the actors are. But we just wanted to know if that's, um, you know, if that's... Can I ask you, are you, um, when you say that you don't know what mob they're from or that they're Aboriginal, is it just that you're casting Aboriginal people in a role that, and the role isn't Aboriginal? Like, is that, uh, are you saying that they, the I role guess, is an Indigenous role? Because there's a Well, it's an Indigenous role, and this is what we have to think well, about. Well, like Indigenous actors, but... They are Indigenous actors. They're two particular actors that we just love the work of, and we wanted, we wanted mm -hmm. to cast them in our film, and they're yes. both friends of ours as well. And um, I guess that was that was the question: is is uh, yeah, do, does there have to be a, a, any reference? Can we have characters that are uh, going back to what I'm saying about colorblind casting? Can we just have people who just happen to be uh, of uh, of an indigenous uh, indigenous background without actually uh, going into their uh, family history? I, I think I it's, on the side. I don't know. It just sounds like that it's not an indigenous role that you've written. It's just it just happens to actors. be. Well, that's what yeah, I'm saying. It just happens to be a, a character that happens to be in this group of people. If we don't have, if we don't discuss the background, <laughs> this is a sorry. Uh, okay, no, no, sorry, no, I'm, I'm, I have, I've been listening. I was just simply saying, can you, can you have it, an Aboriginal character, and is it offensive to not mention their, their mob or their background in, in terms of the story? Well, what's their backstory? I mean, I don't know the, the, the film or whatever you're working on, but you know, surely their Aboriginality would inform 
that makeup of the character and if you don't know where their mob's from and all that like well, we know, would like know we would know in our backstory and we would know just like with any other character in the film their backstory but it might not it might not the audience might not have that conveyed to them over the course of the film so is it indigenous roles then a good change <laughs> yeah no. Yeah, absolutely. I'm saying when the actors come... Or just roles t- that you're just putting Indigenous actors in. We'll talk it's about it when we see it. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just saying up until the point that... I just there's a bit of confusion going on. Toddler brain. Yeah. I do have a 17-month-old toddler, so I'm a bit yeah. sleep deprived. I feel yeah. like at this moment in time you are safe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and if joking. it's otherwise, you will hear from people. Okay. <laughs> and, and there has to be confusion about it because we haven't entered this area before. You know, we, we're finding the rules as we go along. And that conversation with your actors and their families and the, the mob, because uh, the mob will have a say about what those actors can portray as well. But to have that conversation, this subtle and flexible conversation, is, um, is, is new uh, and to they us might all. like it. Like, and that's what I mean. Have a conversation with the actors. They might go, cool. Yeah. Can I say something? From an act, but being married to an Aboriginal actor, he doesn't want to always be cast mm. an Aboriginal man. Mm. Yeah. Cast. It happens to be the same guy I'm talking about too, by the way. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is, like, I made a short film and I, you know, you put your friends in your films. And um, so I had my, I cast my friend and he was just some dude on the street that just gave the main character, the protagonist, some money yeah. um, and had this little interaction. And I said, oh, yeah, you can put a suit on. And he's like, oh, I'm going to wear a suit. I'm like, yeah. Like he's, you know, real black fella. And then um, he's like, oh, I've never been cast in any kind of role that I just get to just be some dude on the street. Usually I'm, yeah, kind of tight cast or whatever. So, um, well, that, Tony wasn't cast as an Aboriginal man. His character was Muslim and there was no mention of his Aboriginality. I know. Tony's played a West Indian mm. cricketer as well. So, you know, it, that's what I mean. Had the conversation with, mm. with the actors and... Yeah. And could the Muslims have asked why I wasn't a Muslim cast in that role? Yeah. Um, and West in, Indians. In, in my writing, um, I'm, I'm a storyteller, really. Uh, I get involved in all sorts of other things like tea cosy festivals, you know, um, <laughs> pinnacle of the career. Um, but in my writing, I, I try... It's inevitable that an Aboriginal perspective is going to be in all my writing and it's an in- inevitable that there are going to be Aboriginal characters in there. And sometimes I take a lot of delight in having an incidental Aboriginal character in there who just happens to be part of the Australian landscape and turns up in that story. <laughs> Not a lot to do, but that person is there. He or she is there as a natural part of Australian life. And I think this is what we're talking about, Mm. this natural part of Australian life, because we've had an unnatural part of Australian life right up until this last couple of decades, I reckon. Mm. Any more questions? I'm sure there's plenty. In the blue hat. Hi, uh, my name's Erika Walu. Gunij Jamara and uh, Gunno. Um, I just wanted to refer to the Pathways and Protocols um, of Filmmaker's Guide to, to Working with Indigenous People, Culture and, and Concepts and ter- Terry Janke, which is what uh, most people are uh, told to refer to when working with Indigenous people or doing stories or what, whatnot. I don't know if that's what people have been doing, but that's it's, it's a basic thing that that should be 
done. Um, it explains the moral rights and the individual rights as individual rights only. And it's quite concerning, like reading through that, reading that um, as an as an, um, a black woman making film, that um, we don't have actually any moral rights under the Copyrights Act. Um, we're not protected at all, and that's the Copyright Act, um, 1968. Um, so it excludes, it excludes Indigenous persons with with authority, um, other than the author, you know, curator, from legally exercising moral rights over works. So basically, anyone can do whatever they want with our stories, and we have no moral rights, or we have no rights. Um, so in question of um, decolonising film and who is centred in concept, pre-production, production and post-production stages of film, how are, this, how are our stories being protected from non-Aboriginal people exploiting our stories while only having um, one, of these one of these stages ticked off as an Aboriginal story? To, le to legitimise it as an Aboriginal story. Um, sometimes these Aboriginal stories only have like one Aboriginal person in four of those stages and concept, pre-production, production and post-production. And um, a lot of the time our stories get lost in each of those stages. Well, not just a lot of time, most definitely our stories get lost within those. Um, the question is, would it be, would you find it appropriate to put a stop to non-Aboriginal filmmakers producing our stories until education of protocols are understood? I would agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah, like I'm, as I said, I'm less optimistic um, about the capacity for non-Indigenous people involved in film and television to give actually give up power or educate themselves. And so... Um, I'm a historian by training and it irritates me to no end the amount of shit that's produced about Indigenous history um, without actual consultation with the people that they're writing about. And um, I think that continues to happen in film and TV. Though there are significant changes um, taking place, I don't know if it's a substantial shift in the way that things are practised um, institutionally. So that's... Yeah, we need more producers. We need more Indigenous producers and production companies um, because you do have some non-Aboriginal production companies making a lot of money. Mm. Commercial, like if they've got a commercially successful project that's an Aboriginal story, they're the ones that are making the money, not and so much. And owe the yeah, intellectual mm. property, not so much the writer or the people whose story it is about. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. We just, yeah. So just to it's also the incapacity of um, the legal system and Western law to recognise Indigenous rights. Like it's a you know and communal rights and rights to stories. Like it's a fundamental flaw that the Western legal system is still trying to catch <laughs> up with in terms of you know I don't even know if it ever will. Mm. But Mm. 
Uh, yeah, I guess there's you know there's a little bit of research that like I'm you know I'm uh, encouraging people to do themselves, and I guess um, yeah if you um, research um, the pathways and protocols of filmmakers guide to working with indigenous peoples, then you'll find under those protocols and the pathways that, that they'll explicitly talk about how um, to work with indigenous peoples, but actually at the end of the day, the people that you wish to work with to tell Indigenous stories, you actually have more rights over their story than mm. the actual actual person that you're working with. Mm. It's, like, it's like in articles. Sure. Like, you know, joint authorship gives people power as well, you know. Um, yeah, like taking someone's story and putting your name on it gives them no power in order to challenge basically is what you're sort of talking about. But also just like someone who's like being approached by um, uh, producers and directors, non-Aboriginal um, producers and directors to um, uh, just give me some job to tick off so that they can access Indigenous, um, indigenous funding. Mm. And it's just like one person on their team that they can tick off and say that this is like an Aboriginal project. Like mm. it happens so often. They just want my CV to send in for the application. Mm. Like it's so common. Um, and it's Where's sickening. The like it's with the funding then? Like there should be things in place to prevent that. Well, who's protecting us? No, there's no protection. No one's protecting us. And if if there was that uh, kind of um, uh, protocol demanded of the film industry and the book industry and the arts industry generally, uh, people are going to say, well, you know, as has happened in this country, um, how come Aboriginal people are a special case? You know, how come we, we're uh, worrying about what Aboriginal people think in this situation? Um, and that's the Liberal view. The Liberal view is that it's open slather. Everything's a green field, just go for it. And that we can't be um, making a special case for Aboriginal people. But why should Western law uh, be the only law in this country? A great crime has been perpetrated here in this country and which has never been resolved. And so why should we respect Western law and all its forms and all its assumptions and all its liberalism? Because Aboriginal um, culture is incredibly conservative. Mm. And we, you know, when Germaine Greer and all those brave women um, took the field on the backs of all those women who were called blue stockings uh, generations ago. Um, they, they were, it was argued that why should women be a special case when the, the need for that was obvious. Uh, and the same is now. You do affirmative action. When a crime has been perpetrated, when an injustice has been perpetrated, you correct it with affirmative action. And that's all this is. So, so affirmative, sorry, the f affirmative action is what I've come up with, is to put a stop to all non-Indigenous peoples to be making film because it's just a continuation of the white male gaze, which we've been under since colonisation. And, like, that is affirmative action. And as a black woman, that's what I'm saying. Stop making our films. Stop making our stories. Stop making 
money and exploiting off us time and time again. Yeah, and I think that... Make um, your own stories. You've got your own history. That one thing, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, of being asked to put your name to different things, like a thing I think we could do better in our community is educating people about this sort of thing that happens because if you're a struggling artist and people are asking you and you don't realize and you get you know like you get taken on this yeah and like you need you need money and another thing also i think two things i want to say and the other thing is that we do have special rights as indigenous people it's not the same as women or refugees or whatever that's what the united nations declaration of the rights of indigenous people is like Mm -hmm. where our rights are different because of our connection to this land Mm -hmm. and it is a special set of rights. but unfortunately it gets breached time and time again yeah but it is a special set of rights it's not yeah you know it's not it's Different. Sorry. Yeah. My husband gets asked at least once a week to read a script written by a white person in the community, and he just politely says no. He's not going to, you know. You know. I don't know if you can ever. I mean, I don't know. It's such a big. Yeah. It's just. It's so big, and you know. Project by project, obviously, but you know, it's one of those things. I think you just have to make the choice. And then mm-hmm. I think like and uh, senior people within the industry can do mentoring with younger people in order to teach this kind of stuff. Because yeah, if you're up and coming and some guy, some big you know person in the industry asks you to be a part of their project, but you realise you know ten years later it was just a tokenistic gesture in order to you know access some sort of funding. You know it's but if you had that mentorship from the get go, then maybe we could. Um, Stop that from happening. Yeah. Mm. Yep. That's happened, yes. Definitely. Can I just say one thing quickly there's a lot of really amazing conversations going on and we're live streaming and we want the people at home to be able to hear the conversation so if you'd like to speak can you wait till you have a mic please yeah thank you <laughs> next next person next question um hi at the risk of being potentially controversial i'm a greek woman born and raised in south africa and now live in australia Africa is a really powerful continent and it took me a really, really long time to start feeling at home in Australia. I just didn't have, I just didn't, it didn't have the same effect on my heart being in this land than it did in Africa. And so I had a really strong desire to be able to connect with Australia and one of the ways that I think that is is necessary to do that is to be able to connect with the indigenous people of this place. And as a filmmaker and a storyteller myself, I've thought about this conversation that we're just having now about white people should just never be able to tell Aboriginal stories and wondered whether you see a future where that barrier cannot be so definite, where where you might invite white people to be part of Aboriginal stories as a way of connecting their hearts to that culture. 
people get so caught up in this whole I can't do this and so I want to. It's like I just implore you to ask why you want to tell this story. No, I like, don't. No, no, not you. Sorry, whoever yeah. it is, whatever. Like, like okay, you, I, I yeah. totally understand um, this girl's perspective here about why people exploiting because I mean that the, the exploitation side of it I'm actually saying I understand that is really fraught to take that out of it but I'm saying as Aboriginal people would you like to see a future where that barrier was not so clear where no you wouldn't like to see that future yeah okay I so can't see I can't foresee that future like I think until collaboration happens and that um, genuine collaboration and people yeah. like why what why do people want to tell indigenous story what is this like ownership thing of um whiteness and white culture where people think that people have a right to everyone else's everything it's like yeah it's not uh, well i suppose to tell. what what i'm talking about is um not saying what so i, I suppose i am talking about genuine collaboration and Good. it's no a, one's got a matter of a, a, like the the cart before the horse kind of thing. Like if 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 you can enter into and become part of those stories, it makes you more part of this place. Do you know what I mean? So at the moment, white no people are still call it in a in still in a um, an, an energy of colonization and would I would like to see it at some point well maybe what it's 200 years into the future where we could all be part of this place and that would mean having to enter into Aboriginal culture understand it and people, feel it people who aren't indigenous will never belong to this country in the same way it doesn't matter if it's 200 years in the future or 400 years in my opinion like being indigenous is something different to being a guest or an uninvited guest or a settler like it's just different okay so and we are all those things actually in the future yeah. at some point we're all going to be the same no okay okay but, um, that answers my question thank okay. you that's yeah i don't know what you guys think <laughs> i'd be scared that the conversation would cease um so i'm 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 always um uh I want the conversation to be rigorous, you know, and to, uh, um, I appreciate your, your word, sister, I really do, but I, what, I'll, I'll, I don't want uh, ghettos to be created um, where we don't have that conversation again, because the conversation we're having now um, is really rare. The conversation in this room now is really rare, and we need to do more of it, not less of it. And I, I'm scared that I, I work in schools from time to time and a lot of school teachers say to me, I'm too scared um, to, teach, to teach Aboriginal studies. That's the, now the excuse why Aboriginal studies is on the curriculum but doesn't get taught. We've got no one to teach it. Well, you know, is that just another kind of colonialism? where yes. we say we, we haven't trained enough teachers to teach Aboriginal studies, we haven't trained enough Aboriginal teachers to teach Aboriginal mm. studies, so therefore we don't have to do it. I really worry about that. And there are, there are the systems, which are the, these Western systems, are geared, um, are, they are ab absolutely geared against Aboriginal people because they're based on Westminster 
um, they're based on their colonial ethic. And so the whole momentum of them um, is about maintaining colony. We're not in a post-colonial society. Um, we're still colonial. And they're the institutions we have to change to make those institutions reflect Mother Earth. This country, we're all here now. You know, we have to listen to Mother Earth and not the Queen. You know, mind you, she's entertained us famously over the past three weeks. Um, it's, it's refreshing to be able to watch play school again. Um, but, you know, we, we have to maintain the conversation. You know, working with, with kids in schools who are, are bitter and fighting each other, you know, you kids have got to stop and talk to each other as, as humans. I'm, I'm, am I sounding like Pollyanna? Um, but... I, I just believe in conversation all the time and um, trying, to, trying to make a better country. Mm. And, you know, I take your point that Aboriginal people um, have a special relationship with the land, but uh, um, Tony Birch um, and I have had this conversation a few times. If you deny non-Aboriginal people an ability to speak with the earth, then you're creating a monster. And that, that scares me. But that doesn't have to eclipse or take over or replicate Indigenous conversations with the Earth. Like, why why is it in the framing of that question that Indigenous people are no longer? Like, it's just the same as assimilation or eradication, mm. in my opinion. Mm. Like, if we're looking to a future where we're all the same, mm. where are Blackfellas in that? You know, mm. I'm not saying in 200 years that um, we don't have a more equitable relationship and mm. colonial structures are gone and there's another system in place. I'm just saying mm. that it's not going to be the, the same way I'm not going to be Greek mm. if I go to Greece and live mm. there for ages, no. you know? And, like, it's and, not the same. And, and Australians will never be Naranjiri. They'll never no, be it's not Ewan. the same. Yeah. And they, they can climb Mount Gulaga and... Um, learn of the basis of that spirituality but they'll never be you and they don't have the same song lines and connection mm. to country and stories that make us who we are mm. you know and we've got a dead like a lot of deadly storytellers out there and i think mm. it's about time that you know we tell our stories we can tell our own stories and and you know getting back to why why would you want to tell our stories is it is it for you or is it for us I, supp I suppose part of my um, sense of the world comes from having been brought up in apartheid South Africa where you have had such strict boundaries not allowing you to have a relationship with... Well, I mean, for me growing up, I was not allowed to have a relationship with a black person. You that, couldn't that have black people well. in your... Pardon? That happened here as well in Australia? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, yeah I wasn't here then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, this uh, this was abhorrent to me, and this is part of the reason we came to live in Australia. So I suppose it's just... Um, Maybe it is for me, yes, just would like um, a bit more of a welcoming spirit because I think that we understand the world through story and it's kind of like, okay, here's a gate, these are our stories, you're not allowed in. Um, so maybe I'm wrong, maybe the way we enter those stories is to just sit back and listen and maybe, yeah, and listening. 
Um, and but as a creator, to the opportunity to one day be able to get inside and feel it, I can see you... you, you, you no. Oh. Okay. So yeah, active listening is really, really important. And I think you also have to realize in relation to all of this that for a really long time, our culture has been exploited, our language has been exploited, our artwork has been exploited by all sorts of different people. And that's why there is this need to want to keep those stories for us. Um, and we it'll didn't take have control a, over the stories that were told. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And we, we didn't have control over the stories and how they were portrayed and who was portrayed and and, um, and all those sort of things. But is there any uh, Indigenous people in the audience that would like to either comment on what's going on or have a question? Mine's more a, a comment. Um, I just wanted to reflect back on the work that our people have done in the film industry. I don't think we've talked enough about that. Uh, we pay our respects to our elders, but our elders are in the industry mm. as well. Mm. And I'm referring to Women of the Sun mm. here. And if anyone knows that, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, that was my aunt, Hillis Maris, who mm. co-wrote that with Sonia Borg, mm. a non-Aboriginal woman. And their collaboration was about to bring the plight of Aboriginal women suffering since European arrival um, and the way their families were ripped apart, the atrocities that happened to women around their, their families, their, their people, and how they were displaced from their land. And how, but the strong Indigenous women that they were still existed. And this, these are the stories that Annie Hillis wanted to bring out for the film industry. Mm. But also Sonia came to her because she wanted to work with her. Now, Sonia wrote for Homicide and Division 4 back then, but she wanted to bring the, the story of, Aborig you know, of Aboriginal people. And Annie Hillis said to her, I want to bring the story of the women and what happened to the women. So here we had the story of the women with sealers, you know, being slaves, um, having their children removed, um, being raped, mm. all that kind of stuff. But right beside them were the men. So, we all, you know, the way The Women of the Sun was written was it was about our people, not just the women, but our people. And that's our kinship structure of our people. So with the cultural knowledge that Annie Hillis brought to The Women of the Sun, it became a very beautiful working story. Mm. So we had the Yulnal people for the first episode, episode coming to speak in their language as family groups. The second episode was about you know, um, the women being sealers taken to Tasmania and the atrocities that the women had there. The third episode was about being women on the mission and their children being taken away. And then the fourth episode was living in the city and being recognised as someone who was brought up believing they were from another culture, but they were actually Aboriginal. So these were all the stories that were put into this one drama series and all acted by Aboriginal people. And I remember Annie Hillis saying, we, we as Aboriginal people were born to act. 
We don't, and none of those actors had acting lessons. They were Aboriginal people and they played the parts because they knew their history. They lived their stories, their oral histories from their families. They knew their family history. And these are the things that bring to the film industry the reality of our people, their history, their stories, mm. as, as well as their lives. They are born actors, but they are also writers, they're dancers, they're performers, they're oral historians. Mm. And we as Aboriginal people are very proud in this. It's part of our culture. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to pay respect. We are talking about things that we think haven't happened yet, mm. but our people have been working towards this for a long time. Mm. And so, you know, I think we need to recognise and take a bit of, you know, stand back and think about what we've achieved in this industry as well mm. and how far we can move forward. Mm. Thank you for your words, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, really good. So, yeah, and you're right, we're all these things and we're only um, here because of the people who came before us and amazing people like Arnie Hillis and others. I think Tracy's probably been mentored by a lot of people as well and I'm sure Arnie Hillis did that as well. Yeah, absolutely. She was definitely a pioneer and ahead of her time, I think, um, and certainly brought a fresh perspective to and, and, and our voice to the screens probably that hadn't been seen before or told before. So, And that's what I think is important is that we are getting to the point where more and more of us are becoming storytellers, where we have that platform, and um, who best to tell our stories than ourselves? And I guess that's that's just my perspective. That's where I'm coming from. And I think, um, you know, like I said before, you can if you want to tell a story, you can, but it will always be on the outer. It won't be that authentic voice that comes from within because we know our stories. We've been handed down our stories. We've got old stories. We've got stories that are thousands of years old. Mm. We've got stories of survival. You know, there's all these amazing stories and we should tell them and have the right to tell them. Mm. Any more questions? Um, yes, hello. Um, that was such a beautiful comment. Um, Auntie, that was beautiful to yeah, reference everything that's come before. Um, as a person who's lived kind of, you know, both lives, um, having a, you know, tribal culture being a small part of my upbringing and also, um, you know, living a pretty white Australian experience, um, I often ponder, you know, in a kind of yeah, I suppose a philosophical way, how do you bring a person who hasn't had that kind of cultural conditioning around to knowing their entitlement and knowing um, that I, I understand that, you know, the, the woman from South Africa, her intentions are so good, but, um, you know, for... A, it, it's just the complete opposite of um, a, a way that, you know, somebody who has had kind of tribal conditioning would think about how to come to, to something like this, wanting to connect, wanting to tell a story, wanting to collaborate. It, it's almost like a completely different shape 
um, I just wanted to kind of unpack that a little, like how, how do you communicate that to somebody who's never had that experience of thinking? Look, um, I don't know, I've made, like, the, those guys answer but, um, about how to maybe, but um, I think that with too much um, gets excused in this idea of intent um, or like whether people have good intent. Um, that's how, you know, lots of people in child removal policies of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, like, you know, even continuing today, like the intent is good, but it does harmful damage. And I do think it's a kind of, it's a really a value of whiteness and, um, um, yeah, so I think that it's important to question intent and not to say that it's okay because somebody has good intentions. Um, and I guess those of us who work in certain places or um, have these discussions with people, then I think that it's our responsibility to question these things. Um, but I don't know if you've got... How do you change the psyche of people? I don't know, but you know, like I do think that change happens through interpersonal relationships as well, and through, um, yeah, like you can have, you can read and start and do all that sort of stuff. But I think that real change happens with communication and sitting down or listening or that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, we've got another question here. Um, hi, I'm Galinda. I'm Nigana Jabajaba from the Kimberley. Um, yeah, just here. <laughs> You're like looking around. Um, and I guess this, again, is more of an internal question um, and sort of, yeah, looking for answers for us um, in that way. But as a producer in a very Western um, arts industry, I feel it's really hard for myself to practice my cultural integrity in those places, um, particularly working off country in, some, in someone else's country. So I guess um, I just wanted to ask, and also thank you, Mob, for carving the way for us and for sharing your narratives and stories tonight. It's been really um, empowering, and we're sitting here as like university students taking notes and getting ready to like write a big deadly essay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so how can we navigate um, and respect working on other mobs country internally within Western arts industries as well, I find really difficult. And um, if you mob have had you know, any encounters or sort of how you navigate that um, and what you do to honor other people's mobs and also your, your own cultural integrity too. Uh, it's a conversation with the community. Engaging the mob. Um, mm -hmm. Your film will be better if the community are involved because um, that's where the richness is. You know, the, uh, the, the hard glassy surface of um, a story from outside um, is smashed by actually asking the people. So the filmmakers who you're working for um, ought to have that conversation. Um, you know, we shouldn't have to legislate for people uh, making films on someone else's country to ask the people of that country. You know, it's it's time when a policy in this country of whatever kind it is, not film policy, whatever policy it is, that we don't have an intervention where people's 
uh, privacy and freedom is restricted without talking to those people. And all this argy-bargy about Aboriginal people were consulted about the intervention, they were consulted, but they weren't warned that this was going to be the outcome. Uh, they were asked questions about their income, about the condition of their houses, um, how many of their children were in jail. Those were the sort of questions people were asked. That was a consultation. We have to have better consultation. And so those filmmakers um, are n never, go I don't think, ever going to be obliged by law, but they should be obliged by morality mm. to go straight to the community. And they should say, now, sister, um, we want you... We're going to give you a promotion because we need you to talk to that community. Um, in my opinion, um, um, as a person living off country, I think I've got, uh, as a sovereign person living off country, it's my responsibility to engage and introduce myself to local traditional owners and to support their campaigns and fights and show up and ensure that that's an ongoing relationship it's not something that you just meet someone and don't don't continue to yeah, not a project by project basis like it's an ongoing thing especially if you're living here yeah um yeah like show up support whatever um the traditional owners are doing or asking for um yeah make make yourself known to them you know do that kind of engagement and uh, you you know you just be blessed in so many ways, you know. Um, I just have one more question. In terms of these um, broader Western arts industries promoting jobs for Indigenous people, I'm asking whether it's okay for industries to assume that Indigenous producers want to be programming Indigenous events or programs or films, because I feel like a lot of the time I'm, I my internal radar where I'm like, ah, oh, that's a bit no good. It's sort of like becoming quite lost with the compulsive, like the, the urge to create and um, sort of facilitate more emerging producers and emerging artists and have that platform. But I guess, yeah, is it okay for industries to make that assumption and how can we address that assumption as well? No, it's not okay. <laughs> It's not okay that they make that assumption that that's all you can do is Indigenous story and Indigenous content. That's not okay. Um, how do you address that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I don't know, you're making me think of, so when I was heavily pregnant, I went and did a, um, see, baby brain, placement, a placement on um, Thor Ragnarok. And I've got to mention that Taika Waititi is like the bee's knees in terms of, um, I guess, taking that project and really making it his own and putting his Maori values and culture into that where he, I think, on the first day of pre, he um, made sure that uh, all of the crew and cast were welcomed on the country by the local traditional owners. Um, in his um, On set, in his tent, he had, like, his Maori flag hanging uh, in the in the tent, an Australian flag, but pride of place was the Aboriginal flag, and I just thought this follows deadly. And what he also did, how I became um, involved in that project was because he um, got his people to talk to the people at Screen Australia, and put out a call to look to engage emerging Indigenous fil Australian filmmakers to be 
um, to have those placements on that production. So he's just a, a leading example, I think, of, you know, what to do and, and how to do it the proper way. And you, and you have power. You can, you can demand that power, um, you know, not with a raised voice, but you can say, hang on, uh, do you really want to make this film well? Let's talk to the mob, because they'll, they'll come up with a story uh, that'll be twice as good as the one you've conceived. Thank you. Thanks. Yep, I think that's all the questions for tonight. But thank you guys again, Crystal, Tracy and Uncle Bruce, for being a part of the panel tonight. And thank you to everyone that's come tonight, uh, hopefully how, listening to the conversation here with the panel and then all of the different questions and discussions and conversations that have happened in the audience will um, make you start thinking about things and hopefully you'll uh, go away from this space and, and talk about it a little bit more. So that's what I hope we get out of this conversation and and dumb to Damien and also Tony thank you so much for allowing me to moderate tonight um I've had a really good time and it's um been such an interesting conversation to to be a part of so thank you so much for that and um yeah so thank you everyone again for coming tonight thank you thank you yeah and a big thank you to ACME for allowing us to have this conversation here tonight as well. <laughs> You've been listening to an ACME Conversations podcast. Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings.